right, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. There's no two sermons today, just one long one like typical. No surprises, except for that we are done with Timothy. Rusty totaled it up. There was like just shy of 17 hours of preaching on the book of Timothy for six chapters. <laughs> it's just good. All right, Philippians chapter 3. Let's read verses 1 through 11. That's where we'll be at this morning. I hope that you made time this week to read all of Philippians. I'm going to assume a good bit of context this morning. It's, it's tough enough to just parachute into a text. Uh, so hopefully we've spent some time in that. We'll read verses 1 through 11. He says this, Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, as we study Your Word here in Philippians, as we study really what is Paul's recounting of his salvation experience, Father, I pray that um, you would speak to us today in a way that only you can through your word. And Father, I love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. As we look at this, as we look forward to Christmas, 
this year, to set this in the context in which we find ourselves today, to help relate it to where we're at today in December 2014. As we look forward to Christmas, we look forward to a season of hope, right, of hope renewal. We were talking about hope this Advent, and we're in a time of the year where really the whole world seems to be soft towards the idea of hope. Uh, your lost friends, your your people that you go to work with and go to school with. There's a, just a general sensitivity to the idea of hope and joy and even religious things in general it tend to be a little more softer around this time of year. And that, I know that's probably decreasing in some senses, but, but nevertheless, it still stands that there's an overall more general sensitivity to that as we look just at our culture in general. Even we in this room, I think, have hearts more prone to reflect on hope and joy and stuff this time of year. We, why is that baby calm? And, and if you're truly trying to follow Christ, uh, you have family and even kids, you, there's this kind of this general pull in Christianity to, to get back to the reason for the season, right? The reason for the season. So as long as we don't take Christ out of the word Christmas then we're, we're getting the reason for the season. I think there's so much more. Let me set it up this way. As we think about Christmas, or even this morning, think about Christmas, what comes to mind first? So right now, you don't have to say it out loud, but just think, what comes to mind? I think about Christmas. What, are the, what do I think about? What, what are the first things that just pop into my mind. They're probably some of the most important things to us when we think about Christmas. Maybe thoughts of joy, thoughts of hope, as I've already mentioned, because I've kind of planted that one into your mind already. Thoughts of family, maybe thoughts of gifts for the kids, thoughts of warm smiles and bright, pretty Christmas lights. Let me ask this question. How long does it take your mind to stumble upon the deep fountain of eternal glory and the coming of Jesus Christ. How much joy wells up in your spirit as you ponder the creator of the universe coming to the earth. He comes not in the perfect garden as we talked about last week, but he comes in the multi-millennial old earth that has now been battered by sin. He comes. How much joy wells up? To, to what extent do you treasure the gift that was given for your eternal joy, your eternal goodness that one night 2,000 years ago? Let me give you an illustration. You know, I think often upon the many gifts that I've been given over the years, right? Gifts like guns. Remember, I got a gun from the, when I graduated from seminary. What a gift. Graduate from seminary, you get a gun. It's wonderful. <laughs> I remember my first bike, at least the first one that I can recollect. It was a Huffy six-speed with the shifter right up here, right? You know, have you ever seen one of those, Anybody? Like the shifter wasn't like up here. The shifter was right in the front center. Which is kind of was awkward when you're trying to drive a bike, but maybe clothes. 
I have lots of those that are in my closet I've never worn. Uh, people buy clothes on Christmas, many gifts, all very good gifts, right? I mean, gifts, these kind of gifts cross my mind every once in a while. But then on the other hand, I think of a, a few other gifts that I've been given. I think of on November 14th, 2010, and on May 24th, 2011, and on November 16th, 2013, I was given the gifts of my sons. Right? These are gifts that I seek to treasure every day. Right? You have kids, I hope to have kids, and someday these, these are gifts that you treasure. You, I see my sons, and I, I'm not trying to sound, you know, uh, high and lofty here, but I see an image of myself, right? I treasure that. I see in them an image of their mother. I treasure that. I find great joy in their presence, maybe when they're well-behaved, but, you know, I find great joy in seeing them, like, I want to hold them. I, it, just even this morning, I walk in, and Hayden spent, Hayden, well, all three boys spent last night with, with Mama and Papa, and and I come in, and Hayden's, you know, all snuggled next to Mama. You know, he, he's kind of in this shy stage right now, right? Well, he comes in, and he kind of looks at me, and then kind of realizes Dad, right? And he comes, gives me a hug, and he just won't, will not let go. Just will not let go. And then Anthony comes up and tries to give me a hug at the same time, and, and Hayden pushes him away and says, No, my daddy. My daddy, Right? It was, I, I couldn't correct my son at that age. I, you don't have to share me, and you don't have to share me with Anthony. I hold on to them tightly, right, as if to never let go. I mean, think, I'm trying to paint this picture for you of treasuring something beyond, even beyond the physical, like, material possessions in which we have, and even... Even our kids in some way fit that category, but holding on to them, treasuring them. And I, and I have to say that even this illustration of treasuring our kids, this just gets us to the beginning of the treasuring that we should have of Christ and that child born 2,000 years ago. The hope we should have in Him. My guess is this, that none of us in this room, myself included, have really begun to journey into the depths of experiencing and enjoying the, the sort of treasuring of Christ that is available and meant for us today, those who are called to follow Jesus Christ. So when we think about that child born 2,000 years ago. We think about Christmas. Like, I just found myself reflecting this past week how many other things consume my treasuring and my hope. And when I think about Christmas, it's just another holiday. It's just another time of year. Now, if you know me, you know that the hoopla that is Christmas doesn't captivate my heart, okay? 
Christmas songs before Thanksgiving is a no-no, okay? Uh, matter of fact, a few weeks prior is just kind of pushing it too, but nevertheless, so I'm not talking, I'm not talking about what we've made Christmas to be. I'm talking about getting to the heart of what God intended for Christmas to be. If you read through some of the Advent book by John Piper that we that I recommended to you last week, I'll recount a couple of things that he said in there. He said, Jesus wants us to be with him, not because he is lonely, but because he wants us to see his glory. And that we would he wants that he desires that we would love him, that we would love Jesus with the same love that the Father has loved him. And, and man, as it begins, just to again, plunge the depths of what does that mean? I mean, we cannot leave that up to our imagination. Scripture clearly gives what does it mean for the Father to love His Son, Jesus. And so what is that? And what does that mean for us? That we would love Jesus with the same love as Father loved Him? Again, we're going to plunge into some of this today. Well, a quote from John Piper in, in that Advent book. He says, this is what Jesus prays for us this Christmas. Father, show them my glory and give them the very delight in me that you have in me. Piper goes on to say, he says, Oh, may we see Christ with the eyes of God and savor Christ with the heart of God. That is the essence of heaven. That is the gift Christ came to purchase for sinners at the cost of his death in our place. So it leads me to this question, why? Why, why, why? Why do we stand at the foot of the manger and not marvel and treasure and shout for joy at what took place? Why do we not scream, God has broken through Why do we not shout, God walks with His people once again? Why do we not stand humbled and say, God, He is providing a way? Why do we not treasure with unparalleled intensity the gift given to me and to you? And lastly, why do we not count the news most precious to our ears. I think, as we think about those things, I think, I think, at least as this text, I think, would help us understand today, I think that when we walk up to the manger, we see the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, right? We see the baby sitting there. We, we walk up to receive the gift of Christ and all that that means, fulfillment, eternal joy, redemption. When we walk up, our hands are full of joy, full of treasure, full of things in which we find precious. But the things in our hands that we are finding joy in, that we are treasuring and we are, are precious, we find precious are things that we have fashioned with our own hands. 
And we stand before the Father, Him ready to hand us the world, and He looks at us and our hands are full. We say, but Father, I've done this. You should love me. I've done this. You should look upon me with favor. I've done this. I want Jesus too, but look at this. Look what I have here. I have all these things. What else must I do? You know, we just, in Philippians, if you read chapter 2, you see we, the beginning of chapter 2, we talk about, he talks about the example of humility found in Christ. We talk about the, the uh, coming of Christ and what it meant for Christ to humble himself and take on the flesh and leaving the glory of heaven. So think about how full of heaven Christ's hands were. And he comes to take on the flesh and humble himself. He was, we talk about it being an emptying of himself by a taking on of human flesh, a, a veiling of it. But nevertheless, we have Christ humbling himself and doing the will of the Father. My desire is this is that today you would drop the gifts in your hands, I would drop the gifts in my hands, that scream of hope in self, in order that we might receive hope from the Father in the gift of His Son to you and to me. That you would stop treasuring the perishable, that I would stop treasuring the perishable and exchange treasure the imperishable. And that we would stop hoping in the incompetent and start hoping in the competent, in the able. So Philippians 3, 1 through 11, I have slated to reread this again. Let's reread, beginning in verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's stop right there. So as we begin this journey of mortifying the hope in self that we find, in order to receive the gift of hope in God, we must understand, I think, a few things that are important in verses 1, 2, and 3. First of all is that God cares about your hope. God cares about your hope. God cares about my hope. Now that's more of an implication of this text, but, but nevertheless, He cares about our hope. Where our hope is at, the extent of our hope, where we are hoping in. Look at verse 1. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I just want to make a couple quick notes about this. Notice that it's addressed to my brothers. These are people who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. To them, salvation is to be right with God. It's to find hope in God. Not to find hope in the fashioning of their own hands. The next thing to note is that he commands them to rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. What does he mean by rejoice in the Lord? 
He's saying, be joyful in God. But joyful here, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but, but joyful here is not like happiness, which is based on circumstances. Joy here, get this, produces an eternal hope. I'm sorry, produces hope in the certainty that is secured by trust in God's power and His promises. This is a rejoice that produces something. A joy that produces hope. And again, as we talked about, hope and something, hope to be real hope must be in something that is certain, that will come, that will happen. And this certainty is secured by trusting God's power and His promises as we see from the rest of the context. Now notice what Christians are not here. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In the context, I think what he's saying is look out for those who attempt to make their own way to salvation. Look out for those whose hands are full of their own attempts to earn their righteousness. I think what cues us into that is his last phrase there, those who mutilate the flesh. So we know who Paul's talking about. He's talking about the, uh, <clears throat> the physical circumcision. He's talking These are the people who believe salvation to be right with God, but their hope is achieving it in devilishly misguided means. That's who he's talking about. That's what Christians are not. And lastly, as far as noticing what Christians are not, he says, look out for those who find their joy and confidence in the flesh. These are evildoers. Instead, I think the next thing we should notice is this. Instead, brothers, rejoice, have hope, be certain. Stand not afraid. He says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What does he say? What are, what are these? What, are the, what is the true circumcision? What do they look like? Instead of glorying in their own works, in their own righteousness, He says they worship by the Spirit of God, that they glory in Christ, and that they put no confidence in the flesh. There's so much in there. I think Paul particularly will go on to unpack the third of those, put no confidence in the flesh. But in order to put no confidence in the flesh, it'll have to be done by the Spirit, and the only other option is to glory in Christ. If you get a chance, I would encourage you to read J.C. Ryle's writing on the cross. Um, he said this. He says, I say, beware of self-righteousness in every possible shape and form. Some people get as much harm from their fancied virtues as others do from their sins. Take heed lest you be one. Rest not till your heart beats in tune with St. Paul's. Rest not till you can say with him, God forbid that I should glory in anything but the cross. And 
say, rest not until you stand before God with all hope in yourself abandoned, leaving your hands free to rejoice in the free gift of hope in the Son. Paul understands and is, is uh, Paul understand is helping us to see that hands full of self-righteousness have no room for Christ's righteousness. A heart full of hope and anything but Christ leaves no room in the end for the gift of Christ. So if we were to grasp a hold of the hope of Christmas, we must first empty our hands of hope and self. And I think what Paul would help us to understand this morning, the first step to that, the first thing we must know is that hopelessness in man is the necessary prerequisite to hopefulness in God. Hopelessness in man is the necessary prerequisite to hopefulness in God. It's a requirement that must be done ahead of time. It's a requirement, it is a, it is a piece in the process that must be done prior to the other. There's a one or the other option. It's not a both and. It's not hopefulness in man and hopefulness in God. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says this, So he just said, I put no confidence in the flesh. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. Blameless. I mean, how many of us have that resume? Right? So kind of reaching back into verse 3 here, but Paul wants us to see, the Holy Spirit wants us to see that there can be no confidence in the flesh. Hopefulness, hopelessness in man, in order for that to happen, we need to understand that we have no confidence in the flesh. There can be no confidence in the flesh. He means that hopefulness in man as a vehicle for rightfulness with God is foolishness. Say that again. Paul means for us to understand that hopefulness in man as a vehicle for rightfulness with God is foolishness. There is no confidence. There is no hope. There is no assurance that man or the flesh can make itself right with God. Now, here's the deal. I know. I know in this room we all know that and we agree with that. But then why do our hands still bear, still hold on? Sometimes we have to look a little deeper to see the things that we're holding in our hands. You know, the illusion that there could be confidence in the flesh, of course, started, I think, in the garden. Adam and Eve were right with God, all hope placed in Him. They had nothing to offer but only empty hands ready to receive the great gifts of the Creator, right? 
the garden, all the goodness there, communion with God, all these things were just simply gifts to them. But they thought if we knew good and evil, we might be able to discern for ourselves what might best fit into our hands. We have hope in ourselves that we can find apart from the free gifts of God. This is what's going on in the garden. The illusion that we could place confidence in the flesh began many, 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 many years ago. Now, what are some reasons that we give for hopefulness in man? That's what Paul does. Paul steps into this and gives, I think it's like, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He gives seven, and I don't think this is necessarily an all-inclusive list, but he gives seven reasons that he, that others, can find hopefulness in man. Now, some of these are going to be like, yeah, that doesn't apply to me, and, and maybe that's true. But I just have to say this before we kind of work through this list real quick. Many of us lack confidence in our faith because we have too much confidence in the wrong things. We lack treasuring of Jesus because we treasure other things too much. So as I was was thinking about this, I was just thinking about our faith and our journey and you know, where's Paul's confidence at? And Paul's certain of his faith, but how? How are we certain? How can we be certain? So just kind of thinking through some of those things, but let's work through this list with those kind of things in the back of your mind. First of all, Paul talks about confidence in rituals. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. So as I was thinking about confidence in rituals, this would be something good for you to reflect on this week. Are there things you're holding in your hands that you find hope in, and those things happen to be confidence in some sort of ritual? I was thinking a ritual that we might find confidence in is I take my family to church. Right? We're all here, and we all brought our families to church. Do you place confidence in that? Do you point to that in your hand and say, God, look what I have done. How many of us place a huge bet on our church attendance? I'll be right with God, and this is evidence of it. Right, if you know anything about horse racing, it's like betting on the horse that's never won. And he just broke his leg. Right? He's not going to win. Think this week. Think. Think. Search your hands. Search your heart. Confidence in rituals. What? I'll get up and read my Bible every week or every day. Well, maybe the other one's more accurate, but uh, I read my Bible often, and it's at this ritual. God, look at my hands. These are full. Look, let me adore my ritual is what I'm getting at, is I think what Paul is getting at. Confidence in race. The people of Israel. I think about that this week. I don't have an example for that. Next one, confidence in rank of the tribe of Benjamin. Confidence in rank. Alright, so let's think about this for a second. Confidence in rank. What is something that could rank us this day? How about age in the faith? How about age in the faith? How about 
whether that's 10 years, 40 years. I mean, many of us have confidence in rank simply because of the age of, of our wearing the name Christian. So I've said I love Jesus for X years. That's something to be proud of. How much are you betting there? Now, again, guys, understand, these are not, well, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll, I'll keep letting the negativity set in for a few more minutes, okay? How about this confidence and tradition? He says a Hebrew of Hebrews. Confidence and tradition. Maybe an example would be this. I believe what I was taught because my mama taught me or this church here taught me this. I'll be right before the Lord because I have this tradition. Confidence in religion is the next one. As to the law, he says a Pharisee. Confidence in religion. We've talked about this before. When it, tends, when, when, when it comes to law... We tend to write our own laws because those are the only ones we can ultimately obey. So as to make us feel like we have earned our way. Paul says he was a Pharisee. What he meant was he had it down. He did it. Next, confidence and sincerity. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Talking about his passion. The intensity at which his heart burned. Let's think about this for a second. Do you place hope in your intensity or your sincerity to be a follower of Jesus? Do you get up to admire the gift of Christmas, but instead you admire your zeal for the faith? Last one. Confidence in self-righteousness, which many of these things fall into this category as well. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All right, so to those super Christians among us, to those super pious Christians among us, those who seem to do everything perfectly, confidence in your ability, easy for us to rack up the layers of self-righteousness, right? Checkbox, got that, got that, got that, got that. But then maybe those of us who consider ourselves more average Christian, we can still be putting confidence in our own abilities as well. It's just that one's measuring stick is different than the other person's measuring stick. I don't tend to say stupid in a sermon, but since he said it in Job, I'll say it. Both groups are stupid. This is stupid, Paul says. I would say to us, stop building our own towers of Babel. Or Babel, if you say it wrongly. Babel. What, what happens is every time your tower starts to get up there, right? God just scrambles the language and the whole thing comes tumbling down. 
This is what Paul's doing. Paul is saying, look, this is the tower that I could build. How about your tower? Now, do you see? Hopefully, just going through some of these, you can look at your hands and see, like, what's in them. Can you? Maybe see what, what you have in your hands that you're adoring, that has captivated your heart. Maybe it's your well-behaved kids. Maybe it's your success at work. Maybe it's providing for your family. Or maybe it's the fact that you don't ever miss church. Or maybe it's your cute little family unit. I mean, what is it? Our hands are so full of hope in self that there's no room to grab hold of hope in God. If your heart is too full of adoration of self, there will be no room for adoration of the Son. So what do we do? Right? What do we do? Our hands stained with wrongful hope. How will we ever grasp the treasuring of Jesus this Christmas if all we do is treasure the things of the world? What do we do? If our hands are full, what do we do? I think we pray. We pray this. We pray that God gives us, that God helps us to treasure hopefulness in Him and His reconciliating work through the Son. We talk about this often, that sin has to be replaced with something right. That wrong belief has to be replaced with right belief. So hope in self must be replaced with hope in God. We must empty our hands. God must empty our hands. Look at verses 7 through 11. Look at Paul's words here. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So I would say this, I don't like doing you know, steps and whatever. But first of all, we must abandon hope in all else. Obviously, I'm implying all else other than God. Abandon hope in all else. Abandon. Run. Now, Here's where I I almost got ahead of myself earlier because I want to help us see something here. Kind of as a sub-point there, I would say abandoned by comparison. Abandoned by comparison. What do I mean by that? I mean by that is that when you take the hope or the things that you do that that are righteous or the good things that you might have in your hand, understanding how they rank in comparison to Christ. This is real important. Because think about the things that Paul had done. Think about his confidence. Think about his rituals, his race, the rank, his tradition, 
keeping the law, his zeal, his righteousness. His self. Think, think about those things. Not all of those were bad, right? Matter of fact, they were, they were good. These are praiseworthy things. These are great things, even. Keeping the law, right? That'd be a good thing. We talk about even those under grace. Keeping the law is a good thing. He said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. His heritage, his tradition, that's, that's a good thing. But if you're familiar with the passage, this is kind of how it kind of help us maybe understand this. If you look at Luke 14, verse 15 through 17, we're not going to go there right now. But he talks about hating mother and father. You cannot be a follower of me if you do not hate your mother and father. Now, I, I take that to, to mean not literally we hate mother and father, but that in comparison, my love for God makes my love for my mother and father and brothers and sisters look like hate. I'm not hating them, but my love for God is so supreme that my love for my family doesn't even compare. Now, I think that's what Paul's getting to here in Philippians. Is that these good things that are going on, these good things that I have done, it's not that they're bad. It's just that when I look at them, when it comes to means by which I can earn my righteousness, they are nothing but filthy rags. They are rubbish. And then on this hand is the righteousness of Jesus. When I look at these things, my heritage, my tradition, my law-keeping, when I see those things, I see them as nothing compared to the righteousness and all that I have in Jesus Christ. So it's not that these are bad, but in comparison, they are nothing compared to this in Jesus. Here, we think about this, the works of our hands are worth nothing compared to the nail-scarred hands of our Savior, right? So I think this is an example of a good thing becoming an ultimate thing. It's when a good thing that we have done, that God has done in us, can become that which we worship. It's a good thing to be at church every chance you can. I, I think it's a good thing. But it's a bad thing to believe that this earns you righteousness before the Father. It's a good thing to read your Bible every day. But it's a bad thing to think that that earns your righteousness before the Father. And what does Paul say? What does Paul say about these things that he was holding on so tightly? He says, I have lost them all. He says, I count them as what? I count them as rubbish. You know what the word for rubbish really means? Like excrement, right? Poo-poo, all right? I'm in a house with three boys, little boys. We talk about poo-poo a lot, okay? I don't want to make light of this. <laughs> but he says, it's like that compared to what I have in Christ. So here's what Paul did. Let me just track this for us. 
Paul just went through and said, yeah, you all who think you're righteous, you all who think you have self-righteous, who think you have reason to boast, you think you have things in your hands that you can hope for, I have 10,000 times more than you have, and all that I have is worth nothing compared to what I have in Jesus Christ. So if Paul says that about his, what do we have to say about ours? I mean, is there anything, anything less than poop? That's essentially what Paul's saying. Yours is less than that. So when we think about abandoning, we need to abandon by means of comparison. We think about them in comparison. We think about our stuff in comparison to Jesus. Now, here's the deal. When we hold on to ours, we're still comparing them to Jesus'. We're just saying ours is just as good or almost as good or maybe even better when we have it in our hands and we continue to keep it in our hands and we're not willing to lose it, we're just subconsciously saying, mine's better. Mine's worth being held on to. So how do we, how do we abandon it? We compare it. Now how do we compare these things? Just practically, we should, we should know these things. We should know what we have in Christ and it's a wonderful because Paul goes on to do that. He goes on to show us what we have in Christ, what we have hope in, why we can have hope in this. It's not just we abandon hope in the things that we do because we'll just exchange that for hope in other things. We have to replace those things, those hopes in ourselves, with the right hope. So, but before I get ahead of myself here, abandon hope in all else, so abandon by comparison, and then abandon to grasp a hold of something else abandon and then grasp a hold of something else abandon to grasp a hold of something else lose all things by which you might seek salvation he calls us all those things rubbish those things this christmas that you're trying to find hope in abandon those things get rid of them run from them wage war against them think what paul look what paul says in verse 3.8b. It says, For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, I think it's easy for us to read that and go loss of all things. Like, Paul has lost everything. I think what Paul is talking about specifically is the things that he held in his hand. The righteousness. I don't think he's, I've lost my house, I lost my car, I lost my camel, you know, I lost my sandal. Like, no, I lost all the righteousness in my hands that I thought made me right with God. I lost all those things and I count them as rubbish. Now I think by implication Paul would say, yeah, I've lost everything for Jesus so that I might know Him. But I think specifically here he's talking about the righteousness that was in his hands. He says, I count them as rubbish. What? What's the next phrase right there? In order to. In order that, so that, as a condition, these things, I count them as loss, in order that I may gain Christ. What did Paul do? What, what, I mean, what did God do through Paul, right? I mean, we understand that theologically, but what, what happened? The things in his hands had to come out so that God could replace them with the things of Christ. Lose, what Paul's saying, lose the junk in your own hands so that you might gain Christ. 
Give up your life so that you might gain true life, right? We've heard our Savior say these things. So, as we think about this abandoning hope in this, how does Paul journey to hope in God? How does he journey to treasuring the gift of Christmas? First of all, he abandons all hope in self. We just talked about that. And what does Paul do next? He boasts in Jesus. What does he do next? What does Paul do? Forget all this stuff that I've done. Now look what Jesus has done. And what does he do? He receives hope in God. I think that's the second thing. I think we abandon hope in all else. We receive hope in God. I don't have time to, to get into the finer nuances of that. Of course, I would understand that it's the Holy Spirit, that it's God's work that helps us to abandon hope in all else. And I worded this one particularly this way, receive hope in God. Because I think it is God who acts in such a way that causes us to lose the rubbish from our hands and replaces it with the desire for the righteousness from His Son. I think it's only in our darkened states that we look at the filthiness in our hands and we call it righteousness. And God opens our eyes to see that. But how do we receive hope in God? We, we lose all in order to gain. I mean, right, that's the kingdom formula, right? We lose it all in order to gain it all. It's really we lose what we thought was everything in order to gain what really is everything. Right? We perceive this world to have everything we want. And we fail to realize that it's Christ who has everything that we want. But Paul says he emptied his hands for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Just think about those words. Think about Paul and saying these things. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul is saying this is a treasure to be had. Knowing Christ is a treasure to be had. This is hope beyond all hope. What we see in these verses here, I think, and all this chapter, like I alluded to earlier, is really Paul's salvation experience. Paul is talking about when he was saved. The losing of his righteousness and the gaining of Jesus' righteousness. So why is Paul treasuring Christ? I mean, Paul had all these awesome things to treasure. All these awesome things that clearly captivated his heart at one point or another. And all these things for which he could place his hope in. Why is Paul treasuring Christ at this point? Because of the glorious work of God in Christ. That's what Paul goes on to say. This is what God has done in Christ and for which he is worthy of my treasuring. What does Paul recount here? Let's look at verse 9. Think about Paul. Paul is saying, this is worthy of placing my hope in. This is worthy of emptying my hands for. Right here, we're talking about here is replacing the false hope with real hope. Paul says this in verse 9. He says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What is he talking about there? He's talking about justification. Paul's talking, this is Paul's, really Paul's soteriology here. This is his talk on what is salvation. But he starts here with justification. That I be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. So this justification, this righteousness, not, not to confuse the two, but our righteousness, our righteous standing changes in justification. But righteousness, talking about here, what is Paul talking about when he talks about righteousness? He's talking about right standing with God and acceptance by Him. Like, do we, when we look at the manger, like, do we, we see Christ? Do we see the treasure, the hope of being right before God? Like, do you see that? What and everything that that entails. Think about this righteousness. There's a fancy word for you: imputation. It's when our sin is imputed to Christ; it is placed on Him as if He is the one who had sinned, and then His righteousness is placed on us, imputed to us as if we were the ones who lived righteously. This is what Paul's talking about. Not having a righteousness of my own, but having a righteousness that comes from God. The righteousness came from God. I didn't live this righteousness. I didn't earn this righteousness. The righteousness is mine, and it came from God. I like what John MacArthur said about Paul at this point. He said, Paul gladly shed the threadbare robe of his own righteousness and stretched out his empty hands to receive the glorious royal robe of God's righteousness in Christ. Guys, at this point, Paul is reminding us that on the cross, Jesus was judged as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who ever truly believed. Like, do you think, do you, do you ponder upon these things when you think about this baby lying in a manger? And of course he says that all this is by faith. All this is appropriated by faith. Faith in what? Faith in God. Faith in Jesus. Faith in the work of Him on the cross. Faith in the gospel. Alright, so verse 9, I think is Paul's very quick blurb, if you, could, if you could simplify the means of salvation into just a few verses. I mean, Paul wrote, you know, a lot, lot more on this. But if you could do it, he's just done it. In verse 9, justification. Verse 10, look at that. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. What is Paul talking about here? I think Paul's talking about sanctification here. Paul's talking about it. God's sanctifying work, His journey, His working out of His salvation, as Paul would probably call it. Well, he would call it, not probably. But in this working out of salvation, in this sanctification, what's he talk about in here? He talks about knowing Him. So what's this deal about knowledge? What's this about knowing Christ? This is not a once and for all knowing, but an ever-deepening knowledge of Him. And I think that's something that we often miss. 
Like we think what Paul says that I may know him, like we mean that I knew him well enough to say a prayer. Paul would see this knowing as an ever-increasing, ever-deepening knowledge of the Son. One that we will explore for all of eternity. I mean, I just, I didn't have this in my notes, but I just asked, like, do we yearn to know Him? Probably many of us don't need to pray that we would have greater discipline in the study of God's Word. We probably should pray first and foremost that God gives us a desire to know Him. Then he talks about this power of His resurrection. The power of His resurrection. There's, and what he's saying is there's no power in the law. There's no power in the flesh to overcome sin or no power in the flesh to serve God. Look at Romans 7, 18. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Huh. I, I love what Paul's getting to there. As Paul is getting to there that, that God is changing my desires, but I still don't have the power in the flesh to do it. He's, he had to change my desires, and he's the one that's going to have to help me do it too. It's not by my power. It's by a different power. It's by the power that raised Jesus from the grave. And I think as Christians we... We, we often are discouraged because we don't realize the power that we have, not for overcoming illnesses necessarily, not for necessarily having a, a, uh, your best life now. But in verse 4 through 5, he says, We were buried, bef- sorry, Romans 6, verse 4 through 5, he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we two might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That we too may walk, might walk in newness of life just as He was raised from the dead. The same power that raised Him from the dead is the same power that enables us to walk in newness of life. Think about that. It was, guys, it wasn't just Jesus was dead, God breathed life into him, and now he's good to go. There's a whole lot more power in the resurrection of Jesus. We're talking about the overcoming of death. We're just saying about laying death in its grave. You understand the power, what that means for death to be laid in its grave. I don't have time to venture into those musings this morning, but think about that. But then also in the sanctification of knowledge, power, fellowship. He talks about a deep partnership and communion with Christ in suffering. Suffering, guys, drives believers to Jesus and drives unbelievers away. But we find, he's Paul talks about we find a merciful high priest. We find a faithful friend and a sympathetic companion. Do you believe that? Believe that? All right. So justification, sanctification. The last thing we see Paul talks about here is glorification. Look at verse 11. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
One commentator I read this past week suggested, and I didn't have time to look up the Greek, but he, he said by, by any means possible would probably be better read if somehow. That if somehow, somehow possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's not because, and I don't think this is because Paul's lacking a confidence. I think it's because of Paul's humility. And I think that makes sense in, in the context. That Paul is, Paul is humble, not in the sense that, well, like, Paul's humble in the sense that I've done this, but my Savior's done this. And if he would save me, if he would he would walk me all the way to the gates of heaven and let me in. And I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me read to you another quote by J.C. Ryle. He says this, talking about glorification and, and reaching heaven and working out our salvation. He says, Would I gather arguments for hoping that I shouldn't shall, I'm sorry, would I gather arguments for hoping that I shall never be cast away? He says, where shall I go to find them? So arguments for hoping that I shall never be cast away. Where shall I go to find them? He says this, shall I look at my own graces and gifts? Shall I take comfort in my own faith and love and penitence and zeal and prayer? Shall I turn to my own heart and say, this same heart will never be false and cold? Oh no, God forbid. I will look at the cross of Christ. This is my grand argument. This is my mainstay. I cannot think that he who went through such suffering to redeem my soul will let that soul perish after all when it has once cast itself on him. Oh no. What Jesus paid for, Jesus will surely keep. He paid dearly for it. He will not let it easily be lost. He died for me when I was yet a dark sinner. He will never forsake me after I have believed. He says, Ah, oh, reader, when Satan tempts you to doubt whether Christ's people will be kept from falling, you should tell Satan to look at the cross. And my question for us this morning is, like, would we tell Satan to look at the cross or would we tell Satan to look at our hands? Paul says to point to the imperishable. Our hope must be in the imperishable for the rest might just burn up. In the same way, hope in anything else is hope. Think in the perishable. So Paul says this, Paul says, why? how can I have hope in the right thing? How do I exchange, how do I abandon hope in all else and have true, eternal, certain hope? As I look at the cross. As I look at what God has done in Jesus and what God has done in Christ through the Holy Spirit in me. So what do we have to hope for as we think about Christmas, what do we have to hope for? If we let these things go from our hands. We talked about this morning, knowledge of Christ and our identity with Him. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us in justification. 
the power of Christ for our sanctification, participation in the suffering of Christ, sharing in Christ's glory and glorification. I mean, all those things. We look at the manger. Do we see these things? Do we see God's work? Do we treasure Him as such? I think no wonder Paul was willing to exchange the list of credits in his column for knowing Christ. You see what I'm saying? Like when you think about that, when you think about knowledge of Christ and our identity with Him and the righteousness of Christ and Peter, the power of Christ, sanctification, participation, when you think about those things, no willing, I, no, no wondering why Paul was willing to let those in his hands go. He was willing to count them as rubbish. Let me read to you Matthew 19, verse 16 through 20. It says this, And behold, a man came up to him, that's Jesus, that is, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? <laughs> and Jesus said, you should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And I think something we tend to miss is tucked right there in the middle of the passage. And that is when the young man says, All these I have kept. What do I still Father, I have all these things in my hands. What do I still lack? I have all these things for which I am confident in, that I have done. What do I still lack? And we come to the manger with our hands full of gifts that we don't intend to give up, but we intend to keep so that we can continue admiring. And my question is, how many of us stand at the feet of Jesus saying, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus says, on your own you lack everything. But in me, you lack nothing. Is that worth treasuring? Is that worth treasuring? Paul tells us here at the beginning of this passage, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Those found in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And the last thing I would say for us this morning is this. Let us not celebrate Christmas as we often do. We celebrate Christmas as if it's a hope that this baby brings is a hope for greater boasting in our goodness. But let us celebrate Christmas as if the hope He brings makes our goodness counted as loss.
And that when we come to the manger, we look at the baby and we say, all this that I have is worth nothing compared to knowing you. Compared to knowing you. Compared to knowing you. Let's treasure him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we can treasure your son. Father, I pray that uh, pray that the things that we hold so tightly in our hands that that we use as means to to prove our righteousness to you. Father, that we would throw those things to the side, not, not because they're worthless. Father, maybe the, the diligence and discipline at which we study our Bibles, maybe, Father, the, the effort that we put into to being moral and, and to living righteous lives and, and to obey the law. Father, we, Father for those things, are, those are not bad. They're in and of themselves. But, Father, they become sin when we point to those and say, Father, look, look what's in my hands. Look what I've done. And so, Father, when we come to Christmas and we think of treasuring this gift given to us, this gift given to us, your Son, I pray that we would glory in Him. That we would stop glorying in and celebrating in the things that we have done and exchange them for glorying in what you've done. And Father, what you're doing. So Father, we can look at those good things and instead of pointing to them as as our righteousness, we can point to those things and say, Father, if this be of you, please continue it. And see them as your works in our lives and not as our means of righteousness. So Father, lastly I say, as we come to your Son this Christmas season, as we search for hope, Father, help us to stop hoping in what's in our hands and hope in the Son that we might treasure Him in a way that is due and worthy of Him. Father, uh, be with us as we reflect in these next few moments and sing of your praises and your glory. Let us glory in you, Father, in your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.